What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and I have special guest, the one, the only, Joe Heitzberg on the line today of Crowd Cow. How are you, man? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Fantastic. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. You're calling from Seattle, right? Yep. Seattle, Washington, Northwest. What's the weather like there? I used to live in Spokane, so I'm always curious to see what I'm missing out on. It is gorgeous. This time of year, right around late July, uh, all through August, is just nobody wants, you nobody leaves Seattle during that time, although I'm leaving tomorrow on vacation. But it's a bad move. You should, I should stay. It is gorgeous. It is beautiful there. The Pacific Northwest is, is like its own little thing. Yeah. The summers really cannot be beat. I it's, agree. It's no, I mosquito, agree. no mosquitoes, no bugs. I always, I have to remind myself that there are no mosquitoes here. It's just such a nice, nice thing to just be able to walk outside and get in the hammock or the place for us being not have to worry about bugs all the time. Yeah, it's peaceful. You know? I mean, I'm always, always getting eaten up by bugs. So that's, that's one disadvantage of living <laughs> out south, I guess. Yeah, so, I used so to die in Texas. Oh, Texas. Yeah, yeah, Texas. It gets pretty bad yeah. there too. Oh, yeah. So, so dive into to Crowdcam, man. We've um, the whole keto audience, the whole keto space. Like they're all familiar with, you know, Butcher Box, U.S. Wellness Meats, um, some of the big hitters. But I'd love to dive into what you have going on with Crowdcat because I think it's very unique. And I, I like yeah. bringing companies on that have like a food product based business more so than a supplement based business because with keto yeah. and like this lifestyle, it's all about the food and nutrition as opposed to the supplementation. So just dive in and go go free. Yeah, sure. So CrowdCow is very unique. CrowdCow is a place where you can pick the exact cuts you want, always know the farm, right down to like each pack of, of meat in your hand will have the farm's name on it. And you're choosing from, at this point, over 60 different farms that we work with, including, you know, we've got A5 Wagyu from Japan. We've got lots of niche chicken and pork, beautiful heritage breeds, quality stuff. We did a Copper River salmon, which is a one-time-a-year limited run, extremely amazing beautiful uh fatty salmon it's gorgeous and delicious um but it's it's 100 percent direct from producer um always know the name of the farmer and explore the world of what we call craft meats so it's completely online shipped to your door um we don't force a subscription and uh, we're helping to create a connection between you and the producer full transparency no bs no pseudo labels and garbage and and confusing things like that it's just direct so you can have a better experience around the dinner table i want to dissect this from multiple different angles but just to kind of like give the audience a you know a a good baseline as to where food actually comes from could you kind of just you know bring people up to speed about you know they're they're picking a package and it says organic on there it has like a green stick and they just assume that it's you know good to go can you kind of Pull the curtains well, back a little bit on um, that. This is, you know, it's it's funny. I, I spend approximately 100% of my time on farms and with farmers that are in our network and with our customers. And I was a consumer coming into this world. You know, my friend walked into the office one day where I was working and he said, like, oh, I'm so excited. I'm getting my cow on Friday. And I was like, what? Like, yeah, I go to a farm and I get the whole cow. It's like 550 pounds of, of beef and and it's incredible. It tastes so much better than anything you can get in the store. And he described the, the island it came from and the environment and how the farmer cared about the animals. And he'd been waiting a long time for the, you know, it was time and he drove a truck out there. And I was just so jealous of the, having that connection, but, but also that that beef tasted better. 
And, you know, I'll tell you to your question about organic sticker. It's like, I haven't met a firm yet that is like, oh, and here's the set of labels and standards and certifications that we're all proud of. Quite the opposite. What they'll say is like, organic is a hogwash. We are beyond organic. Let me tell you what, what, what that means. Let me tell you why organic is, you know, these various certification programs that essentially what they'll say is force these small farms to become price takers so mm-hmm. that they can adhere to someone else's agenda to be auctioned off uh, the auction yard or sale barn and end up in some industrial feed lot somewhere. So for us, it's like, okay. And I haven't met a farm that says I like going to farmer's markets either because for them, it's a two hour drive somewhere with meat in the back of a truck where they sit in a lawn chair waiting for people to stop it. From their perspective, you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's a very tough thing selling direct to consumer or going to the industrial route. And, and those labels and certifications, they kind of see as getting in the way of it all. As a consumer, I always saw those labels and certifications as confusing anyways. Like, uh, what does you know, cage-free mean, you know? Because I heard the chickens are, you know, cage-free just means they have to have a seven-inch by four-inch hole in the side of the thing, you know, half a mile down the this giant enclosed room where they're all cobbled in there and it smells bad. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, cage-free just means they can walk out the door and they never do, you know? Cause it's dark in there and they can't see anymore, you know? So it's like, as a consumer, we always, we know these, these labels don't mean much. I'll tell you going direct to farms, um, you know, even labels like grass fed grass finished don't mean much because, you know, the market is growing so fast in that area that feedlot guys are like, well, we can just manufacture grass pellets, put them it in is, the feedlot. It is crazy, man. I was at whole foods the other day and there, there was a, I was, I was buying some eggs and they had like a diagram on the, the freezer cabinet. And it had like freaking six or seven different, you know, definitions as far as what, you know, free range meant versus, yeah. you know, grass fed versus open range. I mean, there's like a different definition for each. And it's like, why can't there just be you know, free chickens and just call it good, you know? I used to, for, I still do it, you know, for a laugh, you know, whenever I'm in there, I say, hey, so on this seven level uh, program here, uh, this piece of beef right here, this one, which level is it? You know, and then I'll say, like, what, what farm did it come from? Like, what's the name of the farmer? What country did it come from? Mm-hmm. And they can't answer. The person behind the counter will just get all wide-eyed. Can I talk to your manager? You know, it's a fun. I'm not trying to prank you. It's just, it's so confusing if you don't even know the guy selling it to me. And I'll tell you one of the funny things is in this country, unfortunately, is the way the international beef wholesale trade goes is when that primal, a big, big giant piece of, you know, huge piece of meat comes over on the ship and it hits the local, i.e. United States based industrial processor and gets chopped up into steaks. At that point, it is legal to label it product of the USA. Unbelievably. Really? That's true. Oh yeah. Wow. I did not know that. And it's no. And then it's also okay to put, you know, whatever stock art photographer you want on the website or the pack of meat or whatever. So our point of view is like, as consumers, we came at this like, you know what? I just want to have the, the website. It's very clear to me. Like the website, you see pictures of the farm and you buy beef from the animal on that farm that was raised by those people that are in that picture. And then there's a whole other side to it, which is like we also discovered, which is like, guess what? It all tastes different in a wonderful way. You know, the, the high protein clump grass of Montana tastes different than the grass in Texas, tastes different than Western Washington and Angus tastes different than limousine, tastes different than Piedmontese, tastes different than Wagyu. And for us, we started to look at it like, oh, there's this whole world out there like coffee or chocolate where, you know, and not only that, but like, is it weird to you that the grocery store doesn't sell skirt steak? 
or flank steak or crosscut short rib or liver or heart. By the way, you would never want to buy the liver on an animal that was not treated well because the liver is the cleansing organ of an animal. Mm-hmm. You know, so good thing they don't sell that anymore. But it is weird that they don't sell all the cuts, is it not? Um, so for us, it's just it's going back to basics. It's, it's a return to flavor, you know, where the, these wonderful people whose family traditions is to raise these animals in the best possible way to produce the best possible flavors and and do it in the tradition of their families is who I want to buy my 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 protein from. Yeah, I agree. I think you know having your outlook with it as you know approaching it like a craft meat, like you like you have on the website there. Because like with with me in you know keto. I've, I've, a lot of, well, a lot of people notice their, their sense of taste becomes much more heightened. They, they, you know, remove all of the sugars mm-hmm. and from their diet sure. and they just regain their senses. So like I've become a connoisseur of coffee and hundred percent dark chocolate, so to speak. So to be able to say I'm a connoisseur of beef now too, you know, and be able to taste yeah. the difference, a very pronounced difference between like beef that was, oh, yeah. you know, harvested in Montana versus Texas. I mean, that's, that's a very cool, uh, you know, yeah. technique there. Very cool. Like marketing proposition to be able to say okay this is this is a totally different you know style and flavor profile that you're not going to get if you're just buying it off the store shelves yeah our point of view was was the irony of the the way everyone else sells beef and how they source it which is very not transparent is that like when you walk especially in the grocery store when you walk to the beef counter like that seven-step program nobody can tell you what country came from the irony is that you've walked by the chocolate section or the coffee or micro brew, where you had all these choices from around the world, around the corner, every price point, every style. And like the irony though, is when you get home and you have your meal, by far the most expensive thing that you purchased was that beef. Mm-hmm. And by far the most important thing regarding um, any slice of it, whether it's the environment or if you care about animal welfare, you care about supporting families, by far the most important purchase was the meat again. And so we're just saying like, this world of, of variety and quality exists. It's not in the stores. It's not sold by these other people because 86% of it comes through this four industrial um, companies. So, so if, you're not, you know, if you don't see the name of the farm on the, on the, on the pack of beef, you, you're getting it from one of those four, ultimately one of those four companies. Yeah. Yeah. So how, with regard to like, you know, going to all these different small farms, these local farmers, how does that process work? Like, what does it take to, you know, you said you have one of like 60 farms that you're getting your meat from. Do you just yeah. approach these people and, you know, through traveling, kind yeah. of find them and then, and say, Hey, look, that we have a proposition for you. We can help you, you know, distribute and market your, your product and you just keep yeah. doing what you're doing. Correct. For the first six months, I would say for the first month of the company, this is going back more than three years ago. You know, we, we, we figured out some farm names by looking around, you know, uh, you know, we talked to people, butcher shops, restaurants, stuff like this, got some names, started making phone calls. And then you know, we just drove out and met a couple of farms in our first week. And then we, we asked them, like, what other farms are out here that, that you believe in that you, you think we should talk to? And then when we met the first cooperative um, group that shared in, in some of the overhead of like the processing and the slaughter, because all the farmers who wanted to sell direct to consumer via farmer's market, they have to band together to support each other and share resources like slaughter or processing. So we then went to those guys and we talked to the, the guy who used to run the, uh, the slaughter. We said, Hey, you see carcasses all day, which ones are healthy from animals that are healthy, that are good and, and raised well from your unique perspective of literally seeing the carcasses. 
And he gave us a list of farms to avoid and a list of farms to go, go talk to. And, you know, it was funny. One of my first ever drive out, knock on the door of the farm, on the way in, we saw this sign that said grass-fed beef and it had a phone number, which you've seen that sign before, I'm sure, in the countryside. Mm-hmm. And we got to the farm and I said, hey, I saw that sign down the road. Is that your sign, the grass-fed beef sign? And the farmer said, oh, no, that's not ours. And I said, oh, well, can you introduce them? Because we're looking for grass-fed beef. Right, because at that point we thought it's just grass-fed beef is better. Let's get grass-fed beef. You know, we were just like everybody at mm-hmm. that point. Farmer said, "I don't think you want that beef," and I said, "Why not?" And she said, "Well, you know, here's the thing about grass-fed beef in Seattle in the rainy season, Pacific Northwest, the grass doesn't grow right in the winter, and so you have to have had enough grass in the spring and summer to bale it up and store it so that you could feed it to them in the winter." take it out on a tractor, right? Give it to them. If you don't, the cows get kind of skinny. And I go, okay, so they're not doing that? She said, nope. So how do you know that, you know? And she said, well, because I'm the only farm in this area that has a surplus of grass. I'm the one that sells it in the winter. And so I said, whoa, I had no idea. Like that was my first little light bulb around like even the word grass-fed, grass-finished doesn't mean enough. It's not Mm -hmm. enough as a consumer. But some of it might be skinny and not taste good, right? In a bad way. And so, and and, and then it was like, this was just six months ago. I was in Montana and a farmer said, now this is our native Montana clump grass. And what's unique about it is it retains protein even when it dries out. So we're really lucky to have this because it means all year round we have access to high protein. So when they bale that, that hay in the summer and feed it in the winter, it's still really high quality. So I was like, oh, wow. So Montana, if you've got the clump grass, are going to be healthier cattle, better beef in the fall. Makes sense? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very, very intriguing. Really? I mean, you got to think about, you know, like the different seasons. Like people aren't going to have, you know, lush yeah. grass fields at all times. So I mean, what are you no. going to do in the, no. you know, the winter times? No. And then breeds make a difference too. The, in, there's a breed called Kuroge, Kuroge Washu, which is the same breed that in Japan would produce Kobe beef. But they raise it in America too. It's very niche. You know, there's only a few, only like 20,000 animals that are 100% purebred um, kuroge. And, but it, it has this genetic ability to create a fat with a, um, a, a melting point that's kind of like body temperature. So it's a healthier fat with more monounsaturated fatty acids. In fact, even when it's grain finished, it has on par with grass finished beef uh, high levels of the good fats, the monounsaturated, this could I wash it. When it's grass finished, that means eats only grass its whole life. Then it's even, it's higher than anything in the grass world, in the, of other breeds. So it's like, well, that's cool too. I want, you know, here's one that's different in that, in that property if you care about omegas. And that's, that's in Montana there, they typically have those there. Well, they have those all over. The, the biggest breeders of which, it's funny, the, uh, we were really lucky to start the company in Seattle in that sense because some of the most prominent um, breeders, some of the original people who brought that breed over from Japan um, in the 80s and early 90s are actually located here in Seattle. Two of the big guys, one was in northern Idaho and one was up here in western Washington. And there's some guys down in Texas. So they're kind of clustered in those two areas. There are a couple of herds in Montana as well that we know of. But, I mean, it's very... Very, uh, it's very rare. You hear a lot of like Wagyu this, Wagyu that, and typically it's like Angus crossed with Wagyu. But what we sell, we sell that too, but we have some of the preeminent um, Wagyu breeders on our 
in our in our platform. Uh, so what do I type in on your website to get that breed specifically? You would just type Crowdcow Wagyu, uh, Crowdcow Wagyu Washington, Crowdcow Wagyu Texas. Um, it's it's a pretty special event when we have it. There's just not a ton of it. Um, but um, but I think we're launching uh, Tebin Ranch and Kayla Ranch, our two Wagyu ranches from Texas that I think launch in the next two weeks. I'll be keeping an eye out for sure. Yeah. And I went down, I, I visited them in Texas. And of course, we always meet the ranchers, tour the ranch. We always sample the beef, get to know them as people before we'd ever sell anything. We're not an open marketplace. Um, but the, the guys down there are that, that we're sourcing from, that we're working with, uh, the two ranches. They're both friends. And one of them is actually the president of the American Wagyu Association. Um, so really, oh, wow. deep, really, really, really um, committed to the breed and to, they're doing it. We call it craft beef. We actually wrote a book called Craft Beef. It's the idea of small batch production from people who really care to do it right in search of the finest quality and celebrating all the different cuts and the different flavors and different breeds. And it's, it's the opposite of the, the commodity beef that is sold everywhere else by everyone else. What, what would you say, like, just kind of compare and contrast the, you know, the small, small local farming scenario versus, you know, the, the more commercialized industrial beef market like what are yeah, some of the misconceptions maybe, that people don't realize are out there i mean for me the big one is just the human connection that you have on the on the small scale or, or family farm side like when i meet a farmer um who's been doing it their whole life and their grandparents were doing that on the same land i realize that it's like like you've heard the, the term like your life's calling you know or your family mm -hmm. values it's like this this deeper thing that they have in connection to what they do than I have in my work life, you know, in a way like I'm tapping into that through crowd cow by, by helping connect people to those people, you know, and I certainly feel deeply connected to our mission in that way, but not in the same way that like, wow, that barn is my, my grandfather crawled around in that barn when he was a kid. And I like, I think that that's important for two reasons. One is like, obviously when you are supporting them and you're eating that beef, and you feel that connection, you're elevating your experience around at the dinner table and with friends and what is food but to enjoy with other people, right? Um, and, and that connection I think is important. But the second thing is that accountability that the farm has. Like when they say like, we do things this way because X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z may be the local ecology of their land. And the reason they want to protect that is because their kids also play there because their house is there and they live there. Like it's accountable. Or humane treatment of animal because that leads to better flavored beef and easier to manage the animals when they're treated well. They're nicer, they're calm, they're safer to work with. So that accountability, because who's working on them? My family, right? These sorts of um, feedback loops between the customer and the farmer, the farmer and the land, the farmer and their family and the animal. These feedback loops are positive feedback loops, which lead to better and better things over time. Contrast with the industrial system, you know, it's like managed with a spreadsheet, right? And someone who sort of ultimately is punching in to work and punching out is disconnected. So that's where, and it's super scale. That's where really bad things happen. Like, well, yeah, there's antibiotics, but if we didn't do antibiotics, they might all die and then we'd lose millions of dollars. But yeah, the antibiotics, you know, in the manure run off into the stream down the road. That's not our stream, you know, who cares, right? Antibiotic runoff is a big problem that no one seems to would care about. 
because when you're punching into work and punching out managed by spreadsheet, like that's not hitting the spreadsheet, not hitting your family values or anything like that. Kids aren't playing it. What do you care? It's sort of out of sight, out of mind. And by the time it hits the grocery store, well, it just needed to have this or that sticker to make the sales happen. Who cares? And we put a stock art photo on it and it's on a seven scale humane treatment thing. And nobody behind the counter can tell you which level it was anyways, or what country it came from. And so you have so many points for the connection to be broken that there isn't a feedback loop that naturally reinforces quality of the things that matter to me. And that's why we started the company. I love it. Like I've got chills right now. Cause I mean, I, I'm, I grew up, you know, with a family farm, we've, we've got a farm that's been in our family for four generations now and we used to run cattle on it. And you, you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you said everything perfectly. Like the, the symbiotic relationship of the land, the people, you know, being stewards of the land, the animals on that land. Like those are values that don't often get noticed. Like if you're in that industry and you see that and you're shaking the hands of the farmers, you can see it. But for the average person that, that just goes to the supermarket, there's such a disconnect there. And I don't know, I, I don't know if they would have the frame of scope to even appreciate that, but that's why we're doing this podcast, right? Just to, you know, put that perspective out there. But that's what it's all about. Sure. Yeah. What, what do you, I mean, going into like the the beginnings of the company like what was the aha moment or was there an aha moment where like okay this is where i can make a difference i mean what was your initial motivation behind starting this in the first place you know the first was purely consumer right there is an intuition that like i do want to know where my food comes from and you do have a sense just in capitalism that capitalism for all of its merits you know competition can create quality can create incentives whatever but you always you also have this feeling especially in food that it somehow hides negative side effects, especially in food. And it makes you feel bad. Like, so you're at the store and you see a label like organic and you're just sort of hopeful that it means something. You know, it gives you a little bit of hope, but then you watch a Netflix documentary and you feel bad again, you know? And like, there was just a refreshing thing when my friend came into work one day and said, I came so excited getting my beef on Friday. That like, yeah, he knows the farmer. That just feels right. It just feels right. And, and then as he talked about how good the beef was and all that, I just, I, I became attached to the idea. Like I really had to try it. But then he said, Oh, they only do, they only slaughter once a year. You're too late. And, you know, he explained, you've got to get 500 pounds at a time. I was like, Oh my God, it's so hard. So the original inspiration was just, Hey, what if we had a website where 50 people could go in on a cow together and use the internet as a medium to tell the story and connect people. And, you know, eventually we, we were even, I think in that first day we were like, you could have an ask me anything session with the farmer, live streaming with the farmer, stuff like this, to really connect you to the source of the food, but giving access to that in an easy way so you could just buy five pounds, 10 pounds. That's where we started. And it was really about that convenience and that connection. The deeper thing happened later when we realized um, that there are just so many different kinds of, of beef and chicken and pork, right? That they can taste different and be... You know, there's really crazy rare and expensive. There's this one, this the Piedmontese, which is also kind of a genetic, um, unique, uh, you know, unique uh, thing going on. That the Piedmontese breed, which originates in Italy, has a genetic, you know, ability to create more muscle than it really needs naturally. So they're not walking around like running and doing like hurdles, right? They're just mm -hmm. cows. So they're generating way more muscle than they need, and those muscles are not getting. So what does it mean? It means really lean. Like if you look at it, you're like, whoa, that steak is red. 
There's hardly any fat in it. But when you bite into it, it's like really tender. So the top sirloin, which is pretty, is a tougher cut, will be like the tenderloin on any other animal. You know, like, whoa, this is so tender, but it's really lean. So you're like, that's, that's amazing. It was, it was discoveries like that, that were Wagyu and, and why it metabolizes the fats on the inside to make it super marbled and how these fats are higher in omega-3 um, fatty acids or oleic acid, these really healthy uh, acids that are good for arteries. Um, it was really cool to see like there's so much more variants. Not only that, but like also stuff just like all the different cuts. Like you can try skirt steak and if you marinate, it's really cool. Or, or how the guys in Texas do their offset heat slow cooking. And just it felt like a world of, of natural proteins to explore with so many different dimensions with the flavor, the breeds, how you cook it, all the cuts. The, and all the farm stories and all the differences in their local environment, how they do things, the family traditions. It just felt like, whoa, there's something way bigger than just get your beef from a farm, be transparent. But like, come on over here, guys. There's a huge world to explore now. So where we are now, three years in, is trying to build the largest marketplace of these family-run, small-batch, what we call craft meat producers that are not available anywhere else so that you can come and, and have different kinds of chicken and pork that you may never have tried before and you cannot get anywhere else and that are incredibly delicious. I would assume for the farmer, like this would be a huge, you know, advantage for them because, you know, not, not to group them, but I mean, there a lot of them probably have too much going on, you know, manning the ranch to just really dive into, you know, social media and building a brand online. So to have you come in and offer that as a platform to them, it just really yeah, helps ensure uh, they've got some consistency with their, yeah, yeah, and that part feels really good too. That part feels really good. I, I remember the first when we first got started, we were you know we we're so early and we really had nothing but an idea. And then we had an idea and kind of a half-assed website, you know, and like we were just step by step. And I remember one of the first farms introduced this other farm. Oh, you should meet them. It's a homestead deed land, you know, homestead act. The family's been there since the homestead act on their land. That's really cool, you know. I forget which president, you know, but um who signed the papers, right? We went mm -hmm. out there, beautiful, beautiful land, just gorgeous, like glacial rock coming in, all this wonderful open pasture, this old cabin you know, on the property and all this stuff. And, and they had a wonderful um, Angus beef, you know, and, and they'd been selling direct to consumer via farmer's markets. And I remember they said like, we don't like going to the farmer's market. And I was kind of surprised because they've been doing it for like 10 years. Um, I said, well, okay, well, we can help you sell online and you won't have to do that. You would get your weekends back. And they were complaining they never saw their grandkids or kids because they're at the farmer's market every weekend. If they weren't, they couldn't make a living. And we're like, well, we can, you know, you can work with us and wouldn't have to do that. We'd sell it, and, you know, pay you really well. You'd make more money and you'd save less, you'd spend less time doing that. It'd be more profitable. And at first they were reluctant because, well, you know, we've, we've worked really hard to get this customer list in one way or the other. And like, we started selling through you and you weren't around anymore bad i was just like okay well we'll come back to you and i remember going i went to my farmer's market in seattle but i was across the street at the park playing frisbee with my kid and i looked across at the farmer's market and i saw them there and i thought whoa there they are you know the lawn chairs and the big old coolers full of meat i'm just like that is awful that's like a two-hour drive from from the farm you know mm -hmm. and i just remember thinking i just remember thinking like crowd is going to have more customers here in this local area then are coming to the farmer's market because I'm not at the farmer's market. I'm playing, taking my kid to soccer, so to speak on the weekend, or I'm, you know, I've got other things to do. The, the population of Seattle in that neighborhood is not on the whole going to the farmer's market. More people are not going than are going. 
We all want mm-hmm. to go, but we're leading busy lives. And so CrowdCow would be able to deliver more of their beef to more of their local customer base in a more efficient way for everyone. And I just knew that. And so about a year and a half later, they came back to us. And now they sell to us. And they don't go to the farmer's market. I'm sure they're doing much better. And more people in Seattle have access to their beef. So it's really wonderful to kind of play a role there. And you're right. Like the, the, raising an animal is very difficult. It's, 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 you know, they say first, first and foremost, you're a grower of grass. That's a lot of grass. If you ever had like a small lawn in the yard, you know, try to try it on, you know, a hundred acres, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's a, it's a full-time job. And then to give up your nights and weekends to do the, the marketing and the sales and the online and, and make a website and learn how to buy ads and all that stuff. Meanwhile, like I'm never, I'm good at that. Like that's what I've done my whole career. And it feels really good to build a platform that can enable them. And I'm never going to grow cows. That's, I respect that. I know that for, for sure, because I've met at this point, hundreds of farms from very different geographies that are um, in way different climates and have different, you know, I remember my first ranch that was not a grass finished. They were grain finished, right? Is grass fed grain finished, but not feedlot. They grew their corn over there and the house was across the way. And I said, where's the feedlot? And they said, you're standing in it. I was like, this is a feedlot, you know? So like, just like the area where they bring the feed for the last two months, but the rest mm-hmm. of the time they were up, up in the mountains in these beautiful pastures where they herding on horseback, like not what I'd imagine from industrial beef grain finished. Right. But I said like, why don't you do grass finished? I was kind of naive. Like, why don't you do grass finished? You'll make more money. It's the, it is growing really fast as a market. And he just looked at me and he said, grass doesn't grow out here. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. I was, like, well, I was like, okay, well, could you grow it? I mean, uh, what would you? he's like, not really. We'd have to truck the grass over the mountain pass. And it didn't feel right. You know, trucking the grass over the mountain pass so you could call the beef grass finish is not what consumers have in mind when they're purchasing grass finished beef. And later we come to find you know, like they're doing manufactured grass pellets and feedlots now. So yeah. uh, that's not what consumers have in mind. And I'm not sure that, again, going back to the spreadsheet analogy, you know, cheaper and cheaper cost, you know, keep the calories pumped up, manufactured grass pellets as cheap as possible. You are what you eat, and so is the animal. And so I'm not sure that's even healthy at the end of the day. On on that note, I'd really like to dive into, like like you were saying earlier about the different fatty acid profiles. I mean, my audience is very keen on you know the quality of their food, optimizing you know their nutrition. What I mean, what is the difference? Like if you were to have you know a pound of grain finished industrialized beef versus that of you know the the utmost quality grass fed grass finished um, you know beef. On the other hand, how, how does that compare from like a fatty acid profile, and how is that going to be you know reacting inside your body after you consume it? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's two kind of rules of thumb, right? There's there's commonly understood thing is that in general, a grass-fed, grass-finished is going to have a better, a more favorable omega-3, omega-6 ratio than would a grain-finished. However, the data to support that argument comes largely from, from what I understand, very limited studies that were done a long time ago on a very limited subset of the world of beef in terms of all these different breeds. So while that directly may be true, it may not be true given a particular breed in a particular environment, eating a particular kind of grass or a particular kind of grain. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So for example, 
you know, the common, like you have Google and you Google this, what it's going to say is grass fed, grass finish is much healthier because of this and grain finish is bad. But again, that's derived from grain from industrial and grass from whatever they studied 15 years ago at Texas a and right? And what, what I have found, because um, the Japanese study this, is the Kuroge Washu breed, which metabolizes what it eats differently than other breeds, creates a, a fat with a different melting point, right? It will, even when it eats grain as the finishing feed, will produce favorable omega-3, omega-6 ratios comparable to grass finished beef in that study from at Texas A&M. So I looked at that and said, well, okay, then it's not true that grass is better than grain because here's one that's, it's the same, right? Or there's one, another one that they've, it's a very niche thing, but they finished the, they use as part of the feed, Inawata rice straw and pressed olive peels. And the olive peels are super high in antioxidants and that boosts the oleic acids like off the charts, like 20% higher than anything else that they measure in Japan, which they measure very scientifically because that's what they do over there. And it's just off the charts higher. And so that one in particular may even be healthier than any possible grass-fed beef you can get anywhere, like in terms of that. But um, in general, having said all of that, uh, you may be better off eating salmon, right? If that's your only thing yeah. you care about, right? <laughs> the funny yeah. thing is, um, I know for, for me, it's like the, the common sense is like, look, um, if, if you, you know, if, if my kid only ate sugar cereal every day for breakfast versus he ate instant, you know, brown sugar oatmeal versus he ate like a whole oatmeal, I bet that he'd have very, three very different outcomes to his health, right? And I think it's no different. With, and all three of those would be called breakfast cereal, roughly, right? Mm-hmm. So when you say grass fed, I'm not sure what that means in the context of there are different kinds of grass. So our point is like, you know, you should, you should, you, and then the stress of the animal matters too. When, when animals are, are stressed out or they're moved long distances for slaughter, they're secreting cortisol and other hormones and it's mixing in with the meat, especially at the end of their life, even at slaughter day, right? And that can affect the, I think, the, the health properties of the meat that you're eating. So for us, it's like, I think you want to look for um, animals that are extremely well treated and eating very naturally, no pesticides, et cetera. And for us, the only way to really get that is to know that it came from a small and family run independent farm doing it in small batches, which is exactly what we specialize in at Croco. I love it. Yeah. There's, there's, there's no other really better way to hedge your bets than to just know where your food comes from because without, I mean, you're just completely in the dark otherwise. Yeah. Like the liver, like liver is the, you know, liver for a lot of people, liver is like packed with vitamins. That's what you'll read about liver. Your, your grandma told you to eat it, you know, but like, um, you know, it's vitamin A, copper, folic acid, iron. It's, it's really good, but it's also the body's cleanser. So I am staying away from liver unless it's from an animal I know was raised very well, very naturally, right? Because, you know, <laughs> a little scary to eat something that's a sponge for, 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 for the, the, the toxins in the body, right? Yeah, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about the liver that I've got in my freezer right now that I did not get from Crowd Cow. I'm kind of rethinking eating it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, they go for heart yeah, any of the other ovals, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, what about, um, so you don't just offer beef there. I mean, you've got like chicken, you've got uh, pork, you've got fish. So you've got pretty much everything, right? Well, fish we've only really done one time with the Copper River salmon, which is a very Pacific Northwest like favorite. It's a once a year thing. Um, porks on the menu and chickens on the menu pretty regularly. 
Um, they're kind of just starting to graduate from special event being run on a more regular, every, every week or so, there'll be some chicken uh, on both coasts where, you know, no matter where you live in the country, you can buy chicken from us. And it'll always be at this point, um, a pasture raised chicken from a heritage breed, you know, without in, in raised in confinement. Chicken is one where sadly, um, it, it just, over many years, it became completely vertically integrated and taken over by, um, you know, corporations and super scaled, right? And then, you know, not all bad, right? I, I mean, pretty bad, like, but like the, the, the spirit of it, I think going back was not evil to begin with. It was like, hey, protein is really important to people. And so if we make protein ubiquitously available, that'll be a good thing. So let's make it as cheap as possible. Okay, so let's scale it up using industrial factory methods. Mm-hmm. Our point of view is like, let the industrialization happen after the animal's been raised, not before. Chicken, sadly, has been taken to the extreme industrialization during the chicken's life. And it's, you know, you hear these stories of chickens that can't walk because they've been bred to have these giant breasts or they're kept in the dark and they go blind. They're packed together. They can't even move. You know, they're access to pasture, but that's just a technicality of the pen that they're in, having a little window in it or something. They never learn that that window's there or care to go outside, right? So that's very it's, different. Our, our, our producers are a new wave. They're like, screw that. It's a return to chicken. What is it? The joke is, what, is, what does it taste like? It tastes like chicken. <laughs> it tastes like real chicken. When you try it, you'll see. There, there's a definite difference in the flavor profile. We used to raise chickens. We had like a thousand chickens at one point. Um, and, and there's just such a difference in taste. They're much leaner than what you get in the store. But I, I live in Northwest Arkansas, which is the headquarters of Tyson. So I'll see the semis all day long where like, you know, you've got all these chickens are getting ready for slaughter just in these little bitty packing units. And it's sad because like they can't walk, their legs are broken. And like, I'm comparing that with what I, you know, was raised on seeing that when we raised the chickens, it's just a sad reality. Cause I mean, you know, like you, you go to the grocery store and you pick up. They're grown like hydro, they're grown like hydroponic tomatoes, you know? Oh yeah. It's crazy. I mean, the chicken breast is bigger than my chest. I mean, how that chicken breast is bench pressing more than me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they really are, again, that spreadsheet mentality and clocking into work over many years has led to this industrialized, you know, what's good, cheaper, better, faster, bigger. And it's not a t- hydroponic, it shouldn't be raised like a hydroponic tomato. It shouldn't be cranked out like iPhones in a factory in China. It's a, it is a living creature. But, but moreover, like it tastes a lot better when it's raised mm-hmm. naturally. It, it's just juicy and delicious and it's much more expensive because it's niche production, but it's worth it. Like my wife brought home a, a whole foods, um, whole chicken. And like, it was, I was actually, I was kind of hungry and I was like, well, I'll try it, you know? And like, I was kind of looking for it. But then I was like, so spoiled by, you know, the chickens that we get through our farms at Crowd Cow. And when we get other breeds too, there's so many different kinds of chicken. Just Google it. And you'll see how many breeds there are. And it's fun to, to think how, how different they each can taste. We've got one coming soon from Pasture Bird, which is a 100%, you know, new fresh pasture every day, their motto. And they've got one coming that's a, a silky chicken. I mean, it's so different from any other chicken. It's kind of an experiment for him and for us together to, to offer it to people. But it's like the meat is literally black and it has a, it's used in Chinese cuisine. And I'm really excited about it because you definitely can't find that anywhere in stores. And it's a beautiful bird. 
it's alive. It's just gorgeous looking. I'm really curious. We're all curious to to try it and to offer something really unique to people. And just as an example, but there are tons of chicken breeds. We're just barely getting into them. It's so fun. So, so what is the workflow like with regards to like the the business model? Like, you'll have all these you know small craft farms all over the country, and then when they're getting ready, like when their animals are in season to slaughter, you know they contact you and you put that farm on your website. People order, and that demand is met. And then they ship out, they do the distribution or do y'all go there and dis- uh, ship out? How's we that do work? That. So, so we've built, so, you know, farms raise animals, not steaks, right? And mm-hmm. so there is a supply chain, including slaughter and processing and then shipping to the consumer. And it is really important to be able to put things in box with the right amount of ice so that it arrives cold and safe. Right. Um, and, and it turns out that, um, you know, that, that's why I say until the animal is, while the animal's alive, it shouldn't be industrial scaled. After that, it should be. You know, and one of the challenges that that farms have is like, even if they can locally coordinate their slaughter and processing, that is to harvest the animal and to cut it into pieces and wrap it and you know all that stuff, packaging. You know, unless they can do that at enough scale to be able to buy you know a metric ton of dry ice every Monday consistently. You know, the price of dry ice is going to be a dollar a pound or two dollars a pound instead of, you know, 15 cents a pound, right? The costs of getting that product to a person are much, much higher. It's a perishable product. And so we go region by region and we're bringing that scale so we can build it. And the software, I mean, building the software to figure out like, here's the optimal way to pack, you know, your order with the right stuff that you put in the box and to get the right amount of ice in it. Know, and a welcome sticker and a note and a t-shirt and a follow-up email and it's out for delivery text message all that platform we built and we bring to the table and then we use that software on the front end to make a really great customer experience and ensure that the beef arrives or the, the meat arrives frozen and on the back end we use that software to coordinate the supply chain between the the um, producers the processor and our fulfillment centers and then also to give data and feedback to the partners the farms that they've never had before like you know, here's what the customer thought, you know, or here was the yield of the animal, which is a technicality, which is like, you know, here's the cow, right? And like once it was cut up into steaks, like how many pounds of each different cut were yielded? How many rib steaks and how many pounds did that weigh and how much ground beef? All that data is useful for them from a breeding perspective. So they can get that feedback to make informed choices on the breeding program or how did it taste, right? What do people enjoy from Etc. So that that data we're providing back to these farmers is the first time they've ever had it. And in fact, you know, the more you get into big cattle country or near cattle country, the more they'll actually tell you, yeah, I've never had. We don't even know where that where it goes. Like if they if they sell it off at an auction barn and it gets put on a truck and it's driven somewhere, they don't even know where it ends up for sale. They mm-hmm. can't even tell you. And it's at that point it's put on a feed lot and it's kind of like tomatoes all going to make Heinz tomato ketchup. You know, they're all going to be fed the same thing and standing around the same place. It doesn't matter what went in. What's coming out is Heinz tomato ketchup, no matter what kind of tomato came in. Um, whereas if they can keep the animal, finish it out on grass and sell it for what it is, it can have its own unique flavor and quality. But you need that feedback loop process so that you can, they can uh, run their breeding programs effectively. So we're providing that as part of the platform. So today, you know, where we started and where we run today is primarily working with them to vet like, you know, first of all, there are tons of small farms. We're not big enough to work with everybody, nor would we necessarily want to. 
we spend an enormous amount of time finding the best ones. We, we want the ones that have a surplus of grass so that it can be finished out and delicious. We want the ones that have the most humane practices and can point and show us to what that means to them. And it comes from a family tradition and so forth. And, and we always taste the meat right before we'd ever sell it. And we always spend a lot of time with them on their farm. We're just highly curated. We're not like an open marketplace. And then we're working really to bear a lot of the risk in terms of, of um, coordinating that supply chain and managing inventory and selling and shipping. Increasingly, though, we are opening up kind of a marketplace model, especially with our pork and chicken, where uh, the producer can come to us and say, for example, like with the silky chicken, you know, he said, I've got this new thing. It's a Chinese silky chicken, and it's really cool. It's a different flavor, and they use it in Chinese cuisine, almost like medicinal, because it's known to have these medicinal health properties and stuff, and it looks different. And it's pretty cool, and I think I can get some influencers on Instagram that are into cooking Chinese food. And like, we're like, that's great. Put it in as a marketplace. We trust you because we've worked with you now for over a year. So let's put it in. You help us decide what the price should be. We'll get it sold because we've got all the customers that, you know, all across the country who want stuff we offer. You help us with the marketing and how to explain it. And we'll just take a, a cut of that. You know, we've got the whole supply chain, you know, or you can ship it yourself. If you, want to. you know, so we work in that kind of mode too. I think increasingly I it, over time. Over time, we'll, we'll do more of the marketplace things. And we definitely have a vision where, you know, uh, a couple of years from now, there may be even modes where we have uh, farm stands at farmer's markets and, and customers and farmers can now transact through an online platform, but meet and, and hand off their goods in a real world, world context. So instead of like driving two hours with a truck full of perishables, sitting in a lawn chair all day, and driving back home with the stuff that didn't sell, they can just drive with the stuff that did sell and have a pickup happen. Much more efficient. Things like this are in the future. I really like like the whole overarching theme of what you're doing here. I mean, you're you're adding value in on so many different fronts. I mean, all these different farms that you have, all these different ranchers that you're you know working alongside, like you're providing them a platform that they would not have otherwise. And I, it's just it's just really cool the compounding effect of what you're doing because you're helping the rancher you're giving them more value from a data standpoint and just also an audience standpoint and then as the consumer you're kind of giving them you know an ability to purchase quality foods where they know exactly where it came from as if they were the relatives of the ranchers mm-hmm. yeah it really is amazing it really is fun to have that connection um we've i feel very blessed because we can here at CrowdCow working on the company, we can literally interface with the ranches and we do all the time. You know? And uh, we took the whole company to one of our, our ranches had like a little party and a dinner uh, with, with the ranch at the ranch. It was so wonderful. And it's like so many moments in the company where you almost feel like you're going to cry a little bit because just something will happen and you feel very proud. Or there was a farm in Montana that, you know, a year and a half ago we couldn't work with because we were just so on the West Coast only. And small scale, just economically wouldn't make sense to work with somebody in Montana. And then finally being able to go out and meet her and then and sell her beef for the first time. It's actually being sold, I think, in the, also in the next two weeks, this Montana ranch called Omega Wagyu. Just feels so gratifying. And you know, um, when you're on when you're in a when you're a farmer in Montana with something special, which she has something extraordinarily special. Um, when you're in Montana, there are more cows than people. And 
Billings only has 200,000 people anyways, and it's a four hour drive from her farm. There isn't a way for her to really sell locally and to make Mm -hmm. money for that. So her only outlet is to, or her primary outlet is to really take it down to the, the auction, right? Where it's getting mixed in with everything and devalued in a sense. You know, she has Wagyu. It's wonderful beef. It's very special. It's very hard to get, but it kind of just gets sold off as a commodity. It's a real shame. Um, it's a waste. Um, and she'll get no credit for having chosen to raise that unique breed or the fact that she's on a homestead land and has, you know, you could, you could be at the high point of her ranch and in 360 degrees, as far as the eye can see, not see a sign of human civilization except for her house, her ranch house. And it's just, where am I? I pinch myself. This is gorgeous. This is incredible. And to, to be part of that is really special. Um, and so, you know, that, that's really fun. Definitely really gratifying. That's awesome, man. It's truly, truly amazing. Like I, I'm motivated to, to get this out there, you know, cause I want, I want more people to know about this and add value in any way possible because what you're doing is, is, you know, it, it's much more farther reaching than I think either of us could even begin to fathom. Super fun. Just getting started. It's a, uh... We're definitely among the crazies who've taken to build an entirely new supply chain because we don't think the existing one does it for us as consumers. And it's a daunting task. What are you most excited about? Like what, what's in the pipeline that, that gets you the most excited? My goodness. Um, you know, I am definitely excited about, <laughs> you know, we're, we're in the middle of expanding one of our fulfillment centers and I'm, anxiously awaiting that one coming online and being smooth so that we can be better at, at, uh, at servicing our customers and bringing more farms on. I'm definitely excited about the marketplace that potentially it has to accelerate how many farms we can work with. You know, at this point in the business, we do have a wait list of farms that have reached out to us wanting to work with us. And uh, I'm excited to explore other ways that we may be able to help them um, reach consumers, even if it's not directly transacting through our platform. In other words, giving them tools to create a web presence online, which again, many, many of our best farms, you know, that produce the most wonderful craft beef also don't have even a website. You know, mm-hmm. think about how hard that is. I, I this is a funny story. I was one of the first times that like farms now, I think, no, on the whole, like many, many farms know about crowd cow because that's a small world. And they talk to each other. And, and they're rooting for our success. So we've had a lot of interest in, in, from them and encouragement. Um, one of the first times that it was sort of switched from they'd never heard of us and we're knocking on their door to their court courting us or you know, this farm had met. And, oh, I know about CrowdCow. Yeah, come on in. And they sort of, let me show you the barn and let me show you down here where we've got some calves that were just born. And you know what I mean? Kind of like showing us around like the tour. It was awesome. Rather than us just asking questions, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they said at one point, they said, you know, we're really proud this year because we're investing heavily in AI. And I was like, what? <laughs> artificial intelligence? And they're like, no, 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 artificial insemination. And <laughs> I was like, that's funny. Because yeah. in my world, <laughs> my world of software, you know, if our company is getting big enough, you know, that's the kind of thing I would say. Oh, I'm really proud this year. We're investing in AI so mm-hmm. we can better match online consumers to the styles of beef they might like, you know, whatever, right? AI. 
but what it drove home for me was like, wow, what they do sort of on the other end of that, their world on the farm is sophisticated, you know, complicated and challenging. And they've got the weather, you know, and they've got the animal's health and they've got, you know, people showing up for work and family members and issues, right? They've got something I immensely respect and, and don't fully understand. I can't possibly appreciate and, and right intimately. And so it feels really good to show, shine the spotlight on that. And it's all different, right? Because if you're in Montana, it's different than Texas. The, the weather is different, the environment, your family's tradition, the breed you're working with. So much of what they talk about is like the temperament of different breeds adapted for different climates. It's like, wow, there's a level of sophistication in breeding. It's really, truly a craft. And it's fun to come in and sort of respect and pay homage to that and shine a spotlight on it. But it really shows that like their world is just as sophisticated as online software and, you know, adver- online advertising and algorithms and fulfillment software and supply chain planning, all these things. But like together we can do something really special. Absolutely. We, if I think together. if we're aligned on the same mission, right, we have to be aligned. 100%. I think people need to be able to respect and appreciate and be knowledgeable of where their food comes from. So to be able to tie all those together and kind of make like this, you know, mutually beneficial relationship mm-hmm between your team and the small local farmers and then be able to service, you know, the consumers that need to have that kind of perspective in the first place. I think that's just a win-win for everybody. Yeah. It's fun. I want to bring more of that connection and some of those stories, you know, through social media and our website and our emails and things. But like so many times I've been in situations like that one where I just laughed where I was way up in the mountains um, on a cattle drive and the fourth generation or, uh, I guess it would be fifth generation daughter of the fourth generation farmer was on her horse. We just moved the herd to a new pasture, beautiful green grass. She's on her horse. It's a beautiful day. And I said, can I just take a quick video, you know, of you so you can tell people what you're doing. So she's like, hi, hi, I'm Karina Gebbers and I'm out here. And I said, what do you, what do you do out for the farm? She's like, Oh, I do the marketing for the farm. And I'm like, Oh, that doesn't sound so good (laughs) for marketing. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if you're out here on horseback. Like how often do you get out here? She's like, Oh, not very often. And I'm just like, Oh, okay. She goes, yeah, only about like three times a week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A whole nother perspective there. It was a, such a funny, exactly a whole nother world and perspective. I'm just, wow. Your life is only getting you out on horseback three times a week. It's amazing. Um, to, understand that that's part of getting this meal that I'm going to enjoy with my buddies back in Seattle, you know, mm-hmm. like to feel a little bit of that connection there, these two different worlds. Um, oh, that's awesome. That's really cool. I want to do, I want to do more of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've got one more very, very, very important question for you. And I think you're probably the most qualified person to answer it. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. What is the best way? To prepare a steak well i'll tell you i don't know if it's the best way it's my my favorite way at least for me it's like if i'm feeling lazy and i want to have a good meal and it's it's sort of like one step harder than the microwave right <laughs> like okay it's a little bit harder than the microwave but it's not that hard is i'll reach into my freezer and i'll grab a frozen ribeye okay frozen rock solid frozen, and i'll take that out and then i'll hit the button to heat up my um oven to 375 Okay. And then after a few minutes, when that ribeye has started to melt just on the outside, but it's still frozen solid, I'll rip it out of its package, 
and I'll salt and pepper it on all sides. Then I'll get a cast iron pan and I'll get it ripping hot, like as hot as I can. Then I'll put a little bit of light olive oil, not extra virgin, but light olive oil or uh, uh, sunflower oil, something really with a high smoke point. And I'll get that in there till just it starts smoking. Just I'll look, I'll put it in there. It's a couple seconds before it starts smoking. And then I'll put the frozen steak in there with a pair of tongs, sear it on every side. So it's just nice and crispy seared, right? A couple minutes on each side at most. And then I'll take the whole cast iron pan. I'll throw it in the oven. By this time, the oven has to have been preheated to 375. And it'll be in there for like seven to 10 minutes. And then I'll just take it out, take it out of the cast iron, put it on a cutting board, let it rest for a few minutes. And that's a perfect medium rare right there. All right. So I'm, I'm going to take notes here because I have one more ribeye from Crowd Cow that is frozen. I was going to thaw it out, but it's frozen. So this is perfect. I'm going to eat it tonight. So I'd uh, leave exactly. it in, well, in the package. Yeah. Yeah. And what you'll find, you cook straight from frozen. It'll turn out better than if you thought first. Really? So, so leave it in the package, stick it in the oven, then turn it on to 375. Take it out of the plastic wrap, first of all, right? Obviously. Take, take, take it out of the plastic wrap. wrap. Yep. And then salt and pepper it. And then you're going to sear it in a hot cast iron pan, sear it on all sides with a little bit of oil. So it sears real nice. And then you're going to take the whole cast iron pan with the steak still in it, smoke coming off of everything, right into your oven that's been preheated to 375. And leave it in there for about seven to 10 minutes. Okay, perfect. I'm going to do this. This is going to be my meal tonight, and then I'll report tomorrow how good it is. <laughs> Great. Well, let it rest. Let it rest. Um, See, I'm, that's, that's, that's the worst part for me. I hate let, I hate waiting, man. It just smells so good. I just want to dive right in. That's, that's, my, yeah. that's my downfall. You've got, to, you've got to do it because what's happening inside that steak is when it's really hot and cooking, the juices kind of move to the outside. When you let it rest, they move back in, they seep in deeply, they redistribute, it becomes even, and it's just going to be a much, much better steak if you let it rest first before you cut it. I let it rest for two minutes? Don't don't poke it. No, I'd let it rest for a good five to even ten minutes. Don't poke it with a knife. Don't cut off a corner to check how well done it is. Here's how to check how well done it is. Um, Something (laughs) I always recommend is when you have a steak that is thawed out completely, like to room temperature, Feel it with your hands. Pinch it in the middle and on the sides. Feel what raw feels like. That's what rare is. Feel that. You know, well done is like when you pinch a steak, it's like really hard, right? Mm-hmm. So you got to feel a steak. Feel it when you take it out of the oven, right? After that seven minutes, 10 minutes. And when you feel it, with poke it with your fingers gently or with the, the tongs. If it's really, really flubby and really, you know, like a raw, if it feels like a raw steak, then it's going to be really raw inside. But if it feels tense, then you know it's been cooked. And if it feels somewhere in between, it's medium rare, right? So get to know what your steak feels like with your fingers. Each time you're, you're cooking a steak, you know, feel it before you cut into it. So you feel how done it is. And that'll tell you later when you're cooking on the grill outside or in a cast iron pan or whatever, you'll be able to take a steak out, just feel it and feel like, okay, it needs a couple more minutes. And realize too that like it'll keep cooking after when it's resting, right? Right, right. What is your opinion on sous vide steaks? A lot of people have tried that. I've tried. I've played around with it some myself. What is your opinion on it? My opinion is it's a wonderful thing because with, by cooking sous vide, you are dialing in your doneness. You're basically saying like 58 degrees Celsius is a perfect medium rare, 
and you just set the temperature and you throw it in there and, and you're done. You can let it sit for two hours or five hours. It's not mm-hmm. going to overcook. It's just not going to overcook. So it's like perfect for like, you know, you're having people over at 7 p.m. for dinner, throw your steaks in there at 2 p.m. or even lunchtime, just let them sit at that temperature. And then your buddies come over, you know, you're having a glass of wine, you know, and now you're telling stories and then you're like, guys, are hungry and people aren't hungry. And one guy went out the back and like, you know what I mean? You're like, okay, guys, time to eat. And just at the moment of eating, you can pull the steaks out of the sous vide. And then the second thing is you can get a blowtorch out. When is, how fun is that to be able to have a blowtorch in your kitchen? Right. So yeah. you're, your regular old, you know, blue bottle butchers, I mean, plumbers blowtorch and just blowtorch the heck out of the outside of it. Salt and pepper, always seasoned, right? Blowtorch the heck out of it just so it has a nice sear. Or you could do the cast iron pan, quick sear. It's ripping hot past the cast iron. It's a quick sear because you have that crust on the outside. It's much nicer than just a, just a cooked but not crispy, right? Mm-hmm. And you've got a perfect steak. Like you can't screw it up with soupy. And for the tougher cuts, you know, if you're talking about, um, you know, a roast or a rump steak or something like this. A sous vide allows you to really slow and slow, low and slow for many hours to make even a, a, a less tender cut be fall and fall apart tender. So that's the other advantage of sous vide. Um, for me, what is your like, favorite? I, I, my favorite. Well, I'll say this for sous vide. For me, I don't end up using it that often because I have to bring out a big bucket, you know, a big, big, huge pan. Or, uh, I have to fill it with water and I let the water come up to temperature and like all that extra work for me. I just like cooking from frozen. I'm done. You know, it's easy enough. Mm-hmm. I'm getting, again, by feeling the steak and getting to know it, I feel like at this point I can cook. It's not that hard to begin with, but I can cook a good steak, you know, just by feel. And so I don't need the sous vide, but, um, well, you're going to say, what's my favorite cut. I like cross cut short ribs. You can't get them in the grocery store. I used to get them in Chinatown. It was kind of sketchy where they came from. They were kind of sinewy and gross. But I really like Korean barbecue, you know, where it's like, you know, that, that soy and garlic, pepper, marinade. And mm-hmm. I love that quick sear and just tasty Korean barbecue style thing. I just love it. And so for me, that's a, that's a great one. And now I have a source for a very high quality cross-cut short rib. Man, you're making me hungry right now. <laughs> I love it. I love it. There's, there's very few things. I mean, carnivore right now is like a huge hot topic in the keto community and everybody's just eating meat nonstop. So like, I really enjoy talking to people like you, this meat experts, connoisseurs of steak. And I could really just dive in on a whole other level and become enlightened to what that world even offers. It's really fun. I, I've been eating steak. I've probably for the last like 30 days, I've literally had it every single day just based on what my travel has been and, and what I've had in the freezer. And we've had so many new farms lately and different styles of beef that I've just been buying it all and trying it so good. And, and, uh, and I also feel as great as I've ever felt as a person. Like I feel great. I'm not, I'm, I'm losing weight and I feel I have like energy and like, it's been, it's been wonderful. Absolutely, man. Meat heals, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, Joe, where can people go to find out um, more about crowd cow and you and, and get some meat themselves? Yeah, I mean, crowdcow.com is a great place to go to, to find what farms we have featured that day. Get on our email list. Uh, when we debut new farms or special events, you'll hear about it there. You can also set your email preferences to get the right amount of email or to hear about the right things. 
Um, our Instagram account is a great place to kind of get behind the scenes of you know what we're cooking today or what others are, are cooking up from Crowd Cow or farms that we're visiting uh, or deeper dive about the, the wonderful family farms that we work with. Very nice. Very nice. Well, I'll link out to those so anybody can see those in the show notes and find you for sure. Um, other than that, man, cool. I'm going to be logging on soon myself. I need to restock my freezer, so I'll be I'll be ordering another batch here soon. Awesome. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, Joe. It really truly has. Keep doing what you're doing and keep making a difference, man. You're, you're changing lives on a whole other level. Thank you. Till next time, Joe. Take care, buddy.